is this is the last chapter of Nahum. And so, uh, but um, praise God, uh, all of God's word is <clears throat> inspired by God, written by God, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, and is useful for teaching, correcting, training, and instructing in righteousness of the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible says about itself for us. And so all of scripture, there is uh, information for us as believers to be equipped with and for those who are not believers to be um, equipped with as well and spoken to by God and his word. And so <clears throat> let's see what Nahum chapter three uh, has for us this morning. And as we do, I want you just to think about uh, a couple of things um, as as we're navigating this text here, um, because this is sort of like, as Brother Dan alluded to, this is kind of like Jonah part two, right? So many people are familiar with the book of, of Jonah um, and God sent them a prophet. He didn't want to go because the people were so wicked. They were so evil. And um, and that was his reason for dragging his heels for his reluctance. He didn't want to go there because he thought, man, Lord knows what they'll do to me there. Uh, or I don't want to go there because those people are so wicked and evil. I hope they do die and burn. But God has compassion on everybody. Amen. And so the city, uh, he eventually did go and the city did uh, repent. And as Dan noted, this is uh, what's going on after that uh, for the generations that came after them that did not repent. They, they continued to walk in their evil ways. And so uh, this is in about 640 B.C. before Christ is when this is written. And, um, and we're going to look at, at what does this last chapter really have for us? It's interesting, though. Nahum's name actually means comfort or consolation. And so I think he's pointing us to seeing Jesus as our greater comfort. And, and that we see that the, the, the comfort that the people of, of God were experiencing as they saw the downfall of this nation being predicted, and they took comfort that evil is going to be done away with. This evil that was oppressing them, this evil that was raiding their villages and stealing women and children, this, this evil that was, that was just devouring nations would one day be put away with. And for us as believers, do you know the evil that plagues us, the evil that plagues our world today will one day, one day be done with? And that's something we can rejoice in. Amen. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting as, as we think about some things, we think about God's wrath. And I remember um, uh, one time when I was young and um, I experienced my coach's wrath. I probably experienced a number of different, um, my parents' wrath, coach's wrath, teacher's wrath. <clears throat> but I remember one time in particular, we were on a trip, you know, basketball team. And um, we're in those 15 passenger vans as a team going on somewhere, some travel team. And um, and back in those days, you know, they didn't have all those cool windows I got now. We just, just got the windows that just pop open like this. You know what I'm talking about? And just get like two inches of like breathing room back there. We're in a van full of stinky teenage boys. You know, you just kind of pop that sucker open and just <sighs> you just get some fresh air back there, you know. Um, but not only did I want to get some fresh air, I also wanted to be a mischievous teenager. And so I decided that I would throw some things out the window as we were driving down the highway. <clears throat> And so, um, you know, it started with simple things like whatever I had in my pocket, some trail mix or something like that. So little peanuts and, and raisins, you know, and I'm just flicking them out there and they're bouncing around and, you know, flying down the hallway. And then I just found some other things, you know, like little random screws or bolts, things that I could find on the floor, you know, and just I thought it was real funny. Right. Um, because I'm a kid. and I don't have any clue what this does to the drivers behind me. And somehow my coach noticed what I was doing <clears throat> and he swerved over to the side of the road. Um, as if 
he was about to miss hitting a child that was in the street and slammed on the brakes and pulled me out of the back seat. <laughs> and he, in no uncertain terms, as we're sitting on the highway, began to just rip me a new one, as uh, they say, uh, in front of my team, in front of all who are watching, uh, you know, to my great embarrassment. But my coach, you see, he was explaining to me that my actions and my behavior were destructive to other people. He was, he was showing me how what I was doing was causing harm or potential damage that I couldn't even begin to imagine to windshields or to uh, someone driving if they swerve and some bolt or something like that hits uh, their car, and uh, and I had no idea. And he began to unfold that, but the the problem is, you know, man, I caught his wrath, and his patience was reached its limit with me because other people were being harmed. And this is what's happening here in Nineveh. These people were a wicked and cruel nation, and God had been patient with them, and patient with them, and slow to anger. God is always slow to anger, and His anger is not quite like my coaches who swerved and hit the brakes. But his is, is very calculated, is, is very patient with us. And then he says, enough is enough. I've warned you and you have not paid attention. And so now I'm going to make good on my promise. And this is what God is doing here. And so as we uh, look at this, I want us to just a uh, couple do's and don'ts, if you will, for chapter three. Here are some do's and don'ts. And as, as we think about this, I wanted to begin with uh, two quotes. One is by um, a Bible scholar named R. Calkins. He says this as he talks about all of us. So we'll put that quote up there. He says this, a man who is deeply and truly religious is always a man of wrath. Why? Because he loves God and he loves his fellow man. He hates and, 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 and despises inhumanity. In other words, when people are, are being abused and tortured, he hates cruelty and wickedness. Every good man or every good woman sometimes prophesies like Nahum. Amen. And then the... Um, the ancient church father, Augustine, uh, said this, and uh, he was speaking specifically about the Gospels, but he says, uh, and Augustine was an African uh, bishop in Hippo uh, back in, in the early um, days of the church. And he said this, if you believe what you like about the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel that you believe, but what? But yourself. Interesting piece of information about Augustine, uh, who, as we in our nation are celebrating this month, February Black History, and, and talking through all the various inventors and all the people that have blessed our society. Uh, it's interesting to know that, that Augustine is probably one of the most famous theologians, and many people often forget that he is African. In fact, I read uh, one writer wrote this week about Augustine uh, and how he's influenced the Western world. He says this, the influence of Augustine on the Western world is simply staggering. One Bible scholar, Adolf Harnock, said that he was the greatest man the church has possessed between Paul, the apostle, and Luther, the great reformer of Germany. Another Bible scholar, Benjamin Warfield, argued that through his writing, Augustine entered both the church and the world as a revolutionary force, not really creating an epoch of history of the church, but the determined course of its history in the West up to the present day. He was a literary talent. He, he had a literary talent, second to none, in the annals of the church. The whole development of Western life. Think about that for a second. I just was reading a book about a quote about Augustine today in education, and uh, but it says the whole development of Western life in all of its phases was powerfully affected by his teaching. And the publishers of Christian History Magazine said about Augustine, 
after Jesus and Paul, Augustine of Hippo was the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. And, um, and just powerful uh, truth there reminding us of, of, man, this guy was an African theologian. And we tend to think, oh, the great theologians come out of Europe or something like that. But um, uh, his theology has greatly influenced the church and, and how we are today. And so let's check out Nahum chapter 3. You can write this point down. Point number one is this. Don't be an enemy of God. Um, you might thought that was like, duh, pastor. But enemies of God will be exposed and will be judged. And, uh, and this is, again, what we've been just seeing. But the exposed part is what's happening here to the city of Nineveh. They will be exposed. And God is reminding us here not to resist his authority. No nation, no individual will get away with rejecting God. No individual, no nation will get away or be able to hide from his judgment. We will all be exposed. And our tendency is to cover our sin, right? That's our first reaction. That's your first reaction. That's my first reaction. That was our great, 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 great grandparents' first reaction, Adam and Eve, right? As soon as they sinned in the garden, what did they do? They hid. Why did they hide? Because I feel shame. I know I've done something wrong, and I'm going to cover up. And it also says they sewed some fig leaves together, right? That's what we do. But God exposes us for our good. He brings us into the light. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 and see what happens here. <clears throat> says this, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. And then the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, the galloping of the horse, the bounding chariot, horsemen, charging, flashing sword and the glittering spear, hosts of slain heaps of courses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And this is like, oh man, this is awful. This is wicked. And what's happening here is, is, is God is showing the people of Nineveh, this is what you've been doing. This is what you have been doing to so many other nations. In fact, it was in some of, of the Assyrian writings. This is who this is. This is one of the first great empires. In the Assyrian writings, they would often, again, filleting people, skinning them alive and leaving their skins on the fences. It said they would leave dead bodies covering cities like grass. These are evil and wicked people, and now God is bringing back upon them. But notice some of the characteristics. Look back at verse 1 with me. We'll put that back on the screen. Verse 1, notice four things here. It talks about this city. And, and it's interesting because Nineveh, um, people thought, was a great city. It looked nice. It looked beautiful. It, they had, I told you about the gardens they had. In fact, when, when the archaeologists uncovered all the stuff, they found all the art that Nineveh had. All, I mean, these zoos and, and, and the running water they had. I mean, they were just amazed that this stuff existed in this time period, in this awesome, beautiful city. But on the outside, it looked good. But on the inside, it was filled with wickedness. Notice, first of all, it was called a bloody city. This was a city that, that valued violence. We could say Nineveh established a culture of death. They were a bloody city. They would often, in their writings, talk about how blood ran freely through the streets as they invaded other nations. They valued violence. And this is why they're being brought down, because of their violence. Number two, notice they are full of what? They are full of Lies. They are a deceitful 
city. And he talks about that in in the next section of of verses there. But they would often go to these smaller nations and and, and Assyria is this great big power. And they would say, hey, look, look, little village, look, little nation, we'll protect you. Just give us some money. Be a vassal for us and give us some money and we'll protect you. And and the little uh, nation was like, oh, thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then they would invade them. They got their money and they invaded them. And so they were full of lies. They were full of deceit. But notice they were also full of what? Plunder. The greatness of their city, these beautiful zoos, all their uh, art they had, all the stuff they had was, was stolen from other. It wasn't like they were some innovative nation that just was like, wow, filled with these smart people and, and all this sort of stuff. They had stolen all these things. They had stolen animals and artworks from all these other nations that worked hard to do this. And then they brought them to their capital city and made it look like it was theirs. They stole things. They weren't innovators. They they had a great library uh, that, again, is even amazed uh, by archaeologists today. But it was a library that was stolen from the nations they held captive. And then it says there was no end to their prey or no end to their victims. Their victims just would continue. They would continue to consume other people. And notice, this is why they're being brought down because of these wicked things. And then as it continues, pick up with me in in verse four, notice how they talk about their lies and their seduction. He puts it in the term of a harlot or whore. It says in verse four, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. But notice the words here, graceful, Graceful and of deadly, what? Charms. Charms are things that are attractive, right? Nineveh seduced these other nations. And then it says, who betrays nations with her whorings and and peoples with her charms. They were impressive. They were prestigious. They had beauty. They were a powerful nation. But like a harlot, she used those things to entice other nations into false relationships, into protection, and then would attack them and would take advantage of them. Let me ask you this. Sometimes we get impressed by people, right? Sometimes we are impressed with the beauty, with the prestige, with the power of certain organizations, of certain people. And sometimes we let that beauty and, and their power and their prestige blind us to the, the weakness of the character that is in there. Amen. And we need to be careful about people that you hang out with, people that you give to your trust. Because you're uh, amazed. It's called the celebrity factor. And and we're so impressed by this person because they hold this position. And we fail to see their shortcomings. We fail to see the wickedness that exists in their hearts. Don't be led astray by people no matter how impressive or prestigious they are. Amen. But notice, because they will be exposed. Look at verse 5. This is kind of like my wife tapped me on the shirt. She said, good luck with that, honey. I appreciate that. Verse 5 says, behold, I am against you. I hope that nobody ever hears that in this room from the Lord. Behold, I am against you. Because God would say, I love you. Come to me. He would say that to you. And if you would simply come to him, he would receive you and make you his own. But for those who continue to rebel against him, he says, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. And then he says this. Look how he exposes them. Behold, I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. And you're like, good grief. But do you know this is a good thing? This nation is being exposed for the wicked person that it is. It's pretending to go around like there's somebody nice. And God says, I will not permit you to pretend like this anymore. I will lift your skirt and everybody will see how wicked 
you truly are. They will see your shame. They'll be able to tell who you are. And as I think about how this impacts us in our day, God will reveal, he will expose us in his grace. They were trying to pretend they weren't evil. And God says, I'm no longer going to let you do that. He, notice that it says, I will let the nations, I will let the nations finally see who you really are. Just last week, um, and, and as we think about our own society, right? Politicians, their wickedness being exposed, right? Just last week, uh, there was an article um, in the Houston Chronicle about Southern Baptist leaders and pastors who had abused children Hundreds of them since the early 90s. And, uh, and it, was quite, it was all over the news media, and it was, it was quite discouraging uh, to see that. But I thank God that he lifted the skirt to expose those wicked people, to expose the systems in those churches that would continue to allow those people to wound and abuse people. And God exposed that in his grace and in his goodness so that that would no longer be able to, to be hidden. And so God does that in his grace. He exposes our sin. He exposes the practices of murdering children in their wombs. As we think about, as I saw videos, you know, posted this week of, of how they just pull the body parts of a child out of their mother's womb, just rip arms and legs. See, we tend to think and we tend to couch it in language. And, and, and what I read on, on this article is like, no, this is, they call it fetus tissue. They don't call it an arm. It's an arm. And they pull the arm off of that baby right out of their mother's womb. They, they, they suck babies earlier than, than 12 weeks out into a, a, a straw-like tube and their, and their body just gets all mangled. Or they take the morning after pill. That baby has still got to be exposed. And they were like, hey, if you're a mom, you know, you, you may, your child may come out in the bathroom and, and you may have to deal with that. And so this is what's going on here in our nation. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. You guys have to forgive me as I'm dealing with some upper respiratory stuff. And um, so I apologize for the coughing and all that sort of stuff. But God exposes and God exposes the race, the racist and prejudiced beliefs and systems that exist in our world. He lifts back the cover so that sin can be exposed. I read just some articles. Even uh, there's a book called The New Jim Crow uh, by a lady named Michelle Alexander. And she began to expose how the, uh, the, the, the supposed war on drugs was really had racist undertones to whereas the, the, the pursuing of people who, who were um, convicted of drug charges of crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine, it was out of balance by a scale of 100 to 1. And it, it was because of racial profiling, because typically poor people, they can't afford the powder stuff. That's a lot more expensive. They can afford crack cocaine. But yet they were pursued and, and brought to jail. And their sentences by a, a, a conviction of 100 to 1 were worse than the richer people in the suburbs and the people of white skin. And so you could buy 500 milligrams of cocaine and powder cocaine and only do two years in jail. And then you could be a poor person and have one gram and do the same exact time. And so we see these systems and what God does is he pulls back the skirt to expose the sin. And it's not only about politicians and nations and perverts and, and, and racist people. It's me too. And it's you too. God will, in his grace, expose your sin. 
and he will expose my sin. Why? Because he loves us. Because he wants us to bring it into the light and not hide anymore. He, he wants us to be healed because when you bring it into the light, you can be healed. Notice what Galatians 6 verse 7 says. Do not be deceived. God is not what? Mocked for whatever one sows that he will also what? Reap. And then Numbers 32, 23. Maybe you heard this. Maybe your grandma told you this on her knee. It's a great verse. Numbers 32, 23 says, but if you will not also if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will what? Your sin will find you out. In other words, you will be exposed. Your sin will be exposed. You know, there's so much of a better way, isn't it? It's just bring it to God. Just bring it to God. Oh, man, how, how I love that. Look at the rest of the verses there. Verses 6 through 7, it says, I will throw filth at you. I will treat you with contempt. I will make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? The nations would be glad to see. In the same way the nations were glad when Hitler and the Nazis came down. In the same way nations were glad and Europe was glad when Stalin was out of power. In the same way that Iraq was glad and they tore down the, the statue of Saddam Hussein. You know, because of the wicked things they had done to people. These people would be rejoicing over the fact that Nineveh would fall. And so... Don't be an enemy of God. That's point number one. Don't be an enemy of God. But here's point number two, because they will be exposed. But here's the beauty is seek refuge in God because you'll be covered. You will be covered when you seek refuge in God. Notice I said earlier, there's a better way. When we bring our sins to God, he takes them and he covers them with his righteousness. He covers them with his blood and our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. But we've got to take them to him. Remember that verse earlier, Nahum? It was the very first chapter, Nahum chapter one, verse seven. Just such a beautiful verse. It says this, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble and he what? He knows those who take refuge in him. And so if when you align yourself with God, you don't ask him to align to your ways. Don't ask God to, to bless your sin. You bring your sin and you confess it to him and you forsake it and you turn from it and you, and you ask God for forgiveness. And he freely and joyfully forgives us and he covers our sin and it's done away with. And we don't have to live with the fear of being exposed. So don't be an enemy of God, but do seek refuge of God. I'm talking to you about the do's and the don'ts, right? So reach over, touch your neighbor, get to know him today and say, do seek refuge in God. Go ahead. Don't, don't, be, don't be afraid to talk to your neighbor. Point number three is this. You can write this down. Point number three is this. Don't trust in human efforts. Don't trust in human efforts because they will fail. The human efforts of this nation, their pride and their reliance on their own abilities and their, their own ego and their own goodness would bring them down, would fail them. Don't trust in human efforts. You cannot impress God. As I heard Pastor Caleb even pray earlier during our time of singing and worshiping, you know, we can't by our own human efforts 
enter into a relationship with God, it's through his grace. Don't trust in human efforts because they will fail. Let's look at how Nineveh trusted in their own power and their own strength. Look at verse 8 with me. It says this, are you better than Thebes? And by the way, Thebes was a country uh, near Egypt, uh, down in Africa. It says, are you better than Thebes? And by the way, Thebes was attacked by the Assyrians, by Nineveh, in about 663. So this was just about 20 years ago from the time of Nahum's writing. And and he's bringing this back to mind. He's saying, remember how you guys sacked Thebes? And he's going to say, Thebes thought they were so strong. They were just like you. Nineveh was, is by the Tigris River, protected by the river. It's got this great mighty wall. Thebes was also by the river, had all this protection. But notice how Thebes was brought down. So he says, are you better than Thebes, who sat by the Nile River with water around her? Her rampart or her wall, a sea and water, her wall. And then he goes on. Egypt, too. And that without limit put and Libyans were her helpers. Those were other cities there in Africa that, that would um, align with them and protect them. But what happened to Thebes? Thebes fell. Look at verse 10. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. And this was Assyria who did that, by the way. For her honored men, lots were cast and all her great men were bound in chains. So he's reminding them, he's saying, you think you're better than them? This downfall will come to you. And then verse 11, it says this, you what? You also will be drunken. You, notice the emphasis on you here, you will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. And then notice the comparisons that he makes here, the things they trusted in, the human efforts they trusted in. All your fortresses are like fig trees. With the first ripe figs, if shaken, they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Don't you love the poetic beauty of that? He's saying, this is like ripe fruit. All you got to do is just shake the tree, right? Just shake the tree and the fruit just falls. Your strongest defense, your greatest asset, your, your the thing you think you are best at, just like shaking, it just falls to pieces. And God brings it down. Don't trust in human efforts because they will fail you. Then he notice the other, the second analogy that he makes here. Behold your troops. They're like women in your midst. Then he says uh, the third um, analogy here. Your gates, your gates, the gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. And fire has devoured your bar. So your fortresses, your troops, your gates. You trusted in all those things. And that was a foolish decision. And then verse 14, draw water for the siege. Notice again what he says here. Strengthen your, your force. Notice they weren't trusting in God. He says, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There, verse 15, the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply like the locust. Multiply your grasshoppers. And then he's going to give us a, another set of six analogies here that they were trusting. He says, Verse 16, you increased your merchants more than the stars of the heaven. The locust spread its wings and flies away. That's the first one. He says, your merchants. And Nineveh was a strong economic power. They increased their, their satellite areas to where they sold things. Their, their economy was booming. And he said, you increased your merchants. You increased your selling property, your money. You were trusting in your money. But notice, what does he compare their merchants to? He says, they will be like locusts that spread its wings and flies away. And these people were very familiar with locusts. Uh, reach over and touch your neighbor and say, have you ever seen a locust before? 
Luckily, you and I haven't had to deal with plagues of locusts, right? But what the locusts would do is they would come in and they would devour and they would just eat up everything in a day. And then at night, the locusts would sleep. And then you, you know what the locusts would do the very next day? Morning light, they just flew all the way. They just cover the sky. They flew away, fly away looking for something else to eat. And they were gone. And this is what he's saying your merchants are. He's like, you're trusting in your economic power. You're trusting in your wallet and your bank account. And he said, at morning's light, it's going to be gone. Do not trust in human efforts because they will fail you. Then notice what he also says here. Verse 17. Here's the second analogy. Your princes. So we got your merchants or your wealth. Your princes are also like grasshoppers. Young grasshopper. That's probably not how he said it, but... <clears throat> And, and the same idea is going on here. They will fly away. You don't trust in a grasshopper. You, you wouldn't, if, if, if you needed a ride somewhere, you wouldn't like look down on the grass and be like, grasshopper, could you give me a ride? Because Uber's like all booked up. My car battery won't start. Like, Can I just like get a saddle on the grasshopper? And just like, you wouldn't do that, right? These are your princes. These are the leaders you have been trusting in. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Then the next part, your scribes, your religious leaders, they're like a cloud of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. And when the sun rises, what do they do? I'll fly away, oh glory. No one knows where they are. And then the fourth analogy, your shepherds, your shepherds are what? Asleep, O king of Assyria. And then he goes, your nobles, the fifth one, your nobles slumber. And then finally, the sixth analogy, the thing they trust in, your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Or some translations say, you know, what nation has not experienced your endless cruelty? It will be done with. And so, number three, don't trust in human efforts because they will fail. Don't. Don't trust in that. But here, here's what you need to trust in. Here's what I need to trust in. Do. Do rely on God because he will never fail us. When you put your trust in God, not in, not in your wealth, not in your princes, not in politicians, scribes, religious leaders, shepherds, nobles, people, you will, will never be failed by God himself. Notice what it says again in verse 19. It says this. As we think about says, verse 19, there's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you will what? Clap their hands over you. The nations are rejoicing. This wicked power is finally coming down. It is being destroyed. And though you and I don't deal with Nineveh necessarily, we do deal with the Nineveh, don't we, today? There are demonic powers. There are There is wickedness in our world. There is, there is an enemy called Satan who attacks you every day, who attacks your mind, who attacks your kids, who attacks your marriage, who attacks your children and your grandchildren, who attacks your neighbor, who's attacking this nation and every nation upon earth, seeking whom he may devour. And one day, Satan will be done away with. 
And there will be a grand celebration. Other than the celebration that is going on here, they're clapping their hands. One day there's going to be an even greater celebration that the believer gets to celebrate in. You know what that is? It's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. The wedding supper of the Lamb. This beautiful picture of a wedding. Probably no greater, more beautiful picture on earth than a bride dressed. And, and the celebration and the dancing and the music and the feasting. And the book of Revelation, chapter 19, it describes that. But notice how we see it tied in with that. We'll put that on the screen. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 7, talks about that. It says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. What are they crying out? Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And look what he's done. Look at the next verse. Verse 2 goes on. For his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great prostitute. Notice the parallel there that Assyria was called a prostitute, but the devil is also called a prostitute. Seducing people, seducing you and me with wickedness and then devouring us. The great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And God has avenged her on the blood of his servants. Then verse 3, it goes on, right? It continues. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then verse 4 continues. And of the 24 elders and all the four living creatures, this whole scene in heaven fell down. They worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And again, they said, amen, hallelujah. And then verse 5 continues, right? It says, and from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. We're praising this is great celebration. And then verse 6 continues, it says, then I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our, our God almighty reigns. And then verse 7 kind of captures it up like this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And he has done away with the beast. He has done away with Satan. And one day all evil and wickedness for the believer will be gone with. And we will one day celebrate. And so the question is, which side are you on, right? Which side will you be on? Will you be part of the celebrating that goes on in heaven? Or will you be part of the destruction that comes upon all of wickedness? You know, the reality is, as we think about Nineveh, we're all Nineveh. Right? Nineveh heard the gospel by Jonah, even though his preaching was terrible, right? But they heard the gospel and they repented. And God spared them. But then they neglected to tell the next generation. I don't know what happened. But I know that each generation, we're always one generation away from the gospel being gone, from the church closing its doors because we're not looking at the next generation. And I don't know what happened in their culture. I don't know what happened in their city. But something happened that the next generation after that refused to obey the gospel, refused to, to learn about the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the truth of God, the grace of God. And oh, how we may look at that and say, man, am I being like Nineveh? Is my wickedness needing to be exposed? Am I continuing to share the good news down to the next generation? Am I continuing to tell others that they can be freed from their chains like we sung earlier? Or am I just content to sit in Nineveh and then let somebody else be destroyed who comes after me? We're all Nineveh. And so look back with me at that last verse there. 
Here's the beauty. Notice verse 19, it says this, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. We're all, as Pastor Caleb said, we're all broken people. Every one of us has sinned before a holy and righteous God and is of need of healing, right? Is is need of getting our wound cured. But I'm here to let you know that one day Jesus Christ came on a cross. You know what the Bible says in um, Jeremiah? It says this in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 17. He says, for I will restore the health to you and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion of whom no one cares. God is the only one who can heal our wounds. The sin that exists in you and me, it is God. And then what Isaiah prophesied years before Jesus came, Isaiah 53, he says this, surely he, who's he? That's Jesus. This is a prophecy about Jesus, folks. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Notice what it says to Nineveh. Nineveh, your, your wound is grievous and, you're, and, 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 and there's no easing your hurt if you would repent like they did before. And that's the truth before every one of us. If you don't know Christ, we'd invite you to turn to him and let him heal your wounds. Receive him as Savior. Submit your life to him. Follow him and align yourself with him. And watch how as you trust in God, he covers your sins and he will never fail you. It's for him that we exist today. We're going to have a time of of response, a time for us just to process what God is telling us for us to rejoice in the fact that evil will one day be dealt with. And listen to me now, if, and, and if, if you have been hurt by some grievous evil, you don't have to take vengeance, but you can rejoice that one day the good and perfect judge will do what is right. And so you can trust and you can lay down the forgiveness that needs to exist in your heart, right? For the people or the person that has hurt you, you can lay that down at the foot of the cross and say, I trust God to do what is right. I know that he will take care of it. Maybe that's what you need to do during this time of response. As you sing, as you glorify God, maybe you're just going to be amazed at the fact that he forgave you, that you were a Nineveh, that you were exposed, and yet he still loved you and embraced you despite your sin. Amen? So let's pray together, and then we'll respond to the Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. But God, thank you for your justice, Lord. We can worship a God who is just, who who promises one day to destroy all evil. That one day, all wickedness, all darkness, every form of racism, every form of sexism, every form of abuse, every form of neglect will be dealt with and done away with before the throne of God. Oh, how we worship you and we thank you, God, for taking care of that for us. And I pray for this body of believers, Lord, this body that is gathered together. I pray, Father, you would speak through your word to every heart here. And Father, we often pray this before the sermon, but Lord, we're even praying it now. And I just ask that maybe you in your seat or wherever you are, you would just say this to the Lord. Say, Lord, speak to me. And maybe he already has. And then your prayer is, is Lord, 
thank you for speaking to me. Maybe just say that in your heart. Lord, thank you for speaking to me. And then you would say something like this. God, give me grace to obey. Just in the quietness of your heart. Lord, give me grace to obey. Thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for our sins. God, for wiping away every misdeed, every foul thought, every corrupt word that has come out of our mouths. God, thank you for doing that on the cross. We celebrate you today, our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.